0: All right, so before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is July 12th, 2022, and my name is Ben Bauman. I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana, speaking via phone with Dale Grubb, who is located in Covington, Indiana, and we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So just starting off, when and where were you born?
1: I was born in Danville, Illinois, which is just right across the state line, in uh, 1949.
0: Okay. And uh, what were your parents' names?
1: My father's name is William. My mother's name was Levita Bernice. My father's still alive. He's 100 years old. My mother passed away about a year ago, and they have been married 79 years. I also have two younger
0: sisters. Interesting. Okay. Um, so, when did your family first get to Indiana? Oh, my.
1: I've done extensive genealogy things in this. You can, you can go back on um, the end of the last century. Um, there was some grubs who migrated out of Virginia. Okay. And came up here. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. I can actually trace my family. I'm a member of the Sons of American Revolution to a family by the name of Fleming, which came from Scotland. Oh wow! Uh, in the like 1700s. That's really um, cool. The current place where my dad still lives, the farm, they bought in 1932. Actually, they moved there in 1932 and bought it in 1934 out of bankruptcy from the Lafayette Life Company. And my father has not strayed from there for his
0: entire life. Wow, that's interesting. Okay. Um, Let's see. What were your parents' occupations?
1: My father uh, has farmed his entire life, still does. He was out there on a tractor a moment ago, and I, <laughs> I tried to him a little bit because he's so frail, but yeah. he gets activated when you try to help him. My, my mother uh, basically canned uh, all kinds of vegetables and fruits in the summertime. We also had chickens, and she sold eggs so that she could buy the furniture from my bedroom, I remember. Hmm,
0: that's interesting. Okay. Do you have any siblings?
1: <laughs> I have two younger sisters, uh... Marilyn, uh, who's two uh, years younger than I, and Jean, who's the baby of the family, and she's five years younger. Uh, I currently, I, I, I am in my second marriage to Phyllis, and we have a
0: blended family of uh, six boys and one girl. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, how would you describe your childhood? Uh, work. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> you know, it's... It, Just the way things are when other boys were sleeping in on Saturday mornings, my mom would have me up to help dad. So uh, it's always been, you know, something to do or something needs fixed. And uh, also when I was in high school, I worked at the gas station. Once I became 15 years old, two nights a week and all day Saturday and every other Sunday. So, uh, and then during college, uh, I came home and worked for the city electric
0: department for a couple of three years during that summer break. Hmm, okay. Um, Who would you say was the most influential people in your childhood?
1: Most influential people? My mother. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I can go much. She's just heads above everybody else and what she expected and how she handled herself and the upbringing uh, that, that she provided for us.
0: Okay. What did you know about your family's Political beliefs growing up?
1: Uh, not much except to tease grandpa once in a while that, you know, go out there, he, he, my grandfather, lived in town when dad and mom moved to the farm. And on occasion, I remember my mother said, go out there and wave your arm trying to flag your grandpa down, tell him you're a Republican. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's about as political as a got I had no idea what that meant.
0: That's funny. Okay. <laughs> uh, what schools did you attend growing up?
1: Attended Covington High School, graduated in 1967, uh, then Purdue University, graduated in 71 with a degree in ag econ. And uh, right after that period, of course, we were right in the middle of Vietnam.
0: I was in the United States Air Force Reserve at Grissom from 71 to 79, and they trained me, listen to this, a dirt farmer uh, as an operating room tech. <laughs> oh wow, okay. <laughs> geez um now how did you view the state of indiana you know growing up and going to college did you kind of understand its sense of place in the country or
1: oh you just you know if it's the only thing you know it's what you think it ought to be so yeah uh, it wasn't really anything to you know to expand my world in there now later in life i I love to travel, and I've been all the way from Hawaii to Bosnia.
0: Oh, wow. So, and Russia, and etc. Plate to so still. I
1: developed a, a strong desire to travel after I got older, but when we were young, I remember one trip in 1958. Dad had bought a brand new uh, Mercury Marquis, and we took a trip to Colorado, and that was the longest trip I ever seen and remember in, in my life. But basically I think we made one trip back to Virginia to visit some relatives but that's a distant memory to me
0: yeah okay were you involved in any extracurricular activities in college
1: uh, in college I think the only thing I would uh, would bring up is Purdue holds what's called mock P which is a mock political convention and things were Pretty excitable during those days as far as, you know, the world dynamics with Vietnam. Uh, One of the things that was certainly underlining all the time was that I was 18, I couldn't vote, couldn't drink a beer, but I could get killed. Yeah. And that became a pretty strong influence, I think, on many people in my my age bracket.
0: Sure, I bet, yeah. So did you start to develop like a, a political identity then in college?
1: Well, I you know, that kind of struck me as wrong. So, you know, to the degree you're able to in a situation like this, uh, the local county Democrat chairman had a precinct committeeman who was over 80 retiring, and he asked me if I'd be interested. So, you know, I didn't think I had anything to lose. So I tackled it, and that was the, f- the first election I had ever won was for precinct committeeman in uh, 1968, I believe it was.
0: Yeah. Okay. So,
1: a pretty non-political, you know area to be from.
0: Sure, sure. So, describe then your your employment history um, after you got out of the military? Oh, oh gosh.
1: Uh, I worked for a bank uh, in Northern Indiana for about three years as an, as a, a branch manager assistant branch manager for a bank out of Michigan City. And about 1974 or five, uh, <clears throat> farming had had come into preview as a possibility, and Dad was getting a little older. So in 1974, I moved back to the farm and have been there and farming it ever since. Also, uh, started after must have been about seventy-eight or nine, a commodity brokerage business where I uh, brokered uh, the farmers' grain and had futures market. Uh, Capabilities for trading, and and stayed with that scenario of farming some and running the business up until when I sold it after I got elected because I just the
0: time constraints got too great. Yeah, sure. Oh, I forgot. When I was a
1: kid, uh, the other thing we did for money, we, I was a ten-year 4-H member and raised hogs and uh, chickens for showing at the 4-H fair. And that teaches you a little of capitalism pretty quickly
0: yeah <laughs> interesting okay uh when did you get married
1: phyllis and i have been married my first marriage lasted 19 years when i had three sons okay my marriage is to phyllis and we've been married i gotta think about this 27 years okay cool all right she's retired to va uh hospital in Danville as a uh,
0: purchasing agent. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, when did you decide that you wanted to get more seriously involved in politics and think about running for office?
1: Well, a lot of things had happened. Uh, as I mentioned, at Purdue, they held mock p and I was a member of the Massachusetts delegation, uh, which uh, nominated uh, Bobby Kennedy, and they had a history at that time of never having lost whoever they decided the nominee would be. Well, as things played out, you know, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, and then earlier in 1960, vividly uh, remember when I was in uh, uh, math class of getting the news that John Kennedy had been shot. Yeah. So uh, those things were just all kind of percolating underneath the surface, and and then in 1988, uh, I found that the incumbent Democrat had decided to retire, and as most people know, it's much easier to run for an open seat than it is an occupied incumbent seat, so I thought, you know, you don't get many chances in life, and what the hell, so I took a chance and basically drove the wheels off of the car as the district was almost 100 miles long, running from Fowler Clear down into West Terre Haute, so it Jeez. took a lot of time and effort to get people to know you, and yeah. I did started out was with a little Christmas ornament that looked like a donkey that said win the state in 88 and went to every precinct committeeman. I think there was 55 of them in the district, gave him one of those as an introduction and got to talk to him that way. This was all during the Evan by era, you know, and thanks for, and of course Shirkyville was in the district that i represented. So uh, it just kind of all come together at once. I had four, three or four opponents in the first primary of which I won and then went on to win the general election
0: that year, sixty forty. Okay, wow. <clears throat> now, did you have a particular campaign strategy when you were running for office?
1: No, not really. Uh, I just, you know, you're naive to some degree, I guess, is about what you are getting into, uh, I certainly was. <clears throat> but uh, you just have a desire to see things change for what you consider are not correct like the voting age at 18s and things like that so i don't know it just it just kind of fell into place and i decided to give it a shot and 24 years later i finished
0: (laughs) yeah yeah okay did you do any like door-to-door campaigning oh my god yes (laughs) i had i got nephews and my boys we did door hangers and
1: in that first campaign, uh, I mean, we literally were went everywhere that we, we could find a voter. I mean, and there's some pretty rural parts of the district. So, uh, yeah, we, we we did as much hand-to-hand combat as you could possibly imagine.
0: I bet. Did you have any interesting uh, kind of experiences meeting people that were...
1: Well, you did. You always learned something from people. And some of the people I ran into had run for office, you know, and... And been in, and just offered good advice. You know, it's uh, don't be stupid. That's the main thing. Yeah. Don't don't open your mouth and remove all doubt about being a fool. So sometimes, uh, what you learn is that people want you to listen to them. They're not so interested in all the things you're going to tell them. You think you can do. Right. But it's it's important that you let them talk.
0: Yeah. Sure. Uh. Who was your main opponent when you ran for office?
1: In the general election, it was a guy by the name of Jack Goff, who was Joe Harrison's nephew. Okay. I remember going to Attica. That's where he was from. And um, on election day, I got donuts at 5 o'clock when the shift changed at Harrison Steel, and stood there and handed out donuts to people. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one guy said, if you want it that bad, I'm voting for you. So, that's hilarious. You know, you show them the work ethic is what they want to see.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's interesting. It's uh, you know how how different were your politics compared to your opponent. Um,
1: oh, I don't know. Uh, I'm I I don't know. I don't know how to answer that very well. I, I would imagine that his philosophies were. A straight party line, almost, and I think I'm probably a
0: little bit more of a moderate uh, okay. personality. I, uh, I'm.
1: Uh, Rex Early once said it's a thin pancake that doesn't have two sides, and I thought that was pretty insightful, you know. And and over time, you learn after I was in and served a while that some of the ideas you hold are not always right, and <laughs> you need to be flexible enough to change or make an adjustment when you see that you've you've erred or you've learned something new that changes your mind
0: Yeah, sure.
1: unfortunately we're in a situation today particularly nationally where it just seems like it's straight party line votes all the time and I I don't know why people feel just because someone has an opposing view that they're they're your enemy because that's not the way it should be and uh, I hope to pray to God that it does slip back to where, you know, we get a more civil situation. The problem is gerrymandering. And that's particularly evident right now with what's going on in D.C. with some of these things. Uh, It's wrong, okay? And trust me, I know because I helped draw a couple of my own maps. I wanted to make sure
0: Sure. I knew where the votes were more than likely to vote for me.
1: So it's only natural self-preservation is the most basic instinct one has. But it's not right. Uh, it leads to minority rule, which leads to unrest. And uh, unless the U.S. Congress, and I don't think they're inclined to at the moment or couldn't get the votes to do away with gerrymandering, it's just not right.
0: Yeah, that's, yeah. It's definitely some concerning things going on that seem to have no end in sight at the moment, I guess. So. Pretty toxic time in politics. It is. I, I
1: don't know why anybody would want to participate in that kind of a situation. It makes me sick sometimes to see the, you know how people treat each other.
0: Sure, I bet. Yeah.
1: I had a wonderful career, if you want me to just expand a little bit. Sure. on Some of the key legislation that I dealt with. One of them I'm most proud of was the expansion of the organ donor programs in Indiana. And On your driver's license, you get a little dot there. It says you're willing to be a, a donor. I thought that was important with as many grandkids as I had. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The railroad's abandoned property along my father's farm and everyone else, and there was a scam going on by a company who was actually selling quick-claim deeds to farmers, uh, which means they simply were transferring whatever interests they had. Well, some of them were rental agreements and some of them were outright sales, so we cleaned that statue up so that there wasn't much, you know, no more rip-offs going on. I worked extensively, though not with a lot of success on the renewable energy uh, items. Uh, also one thing that I'm most proud of is the case review board for the Indiana High School Athletic Association. In uh, times previous to this board being formed that I pass, uh, people would have to go to court if they disliked the ruling made by the ISHAA. And, and that came about as a result from a kid by the name of Billy Hout. Billy Hout was from South Vermillion and a good soccer player. And during the junior to senior year, he signed up to Indiana National Guard, went to basic training. And as usual, they don't get their flights quite full until they wait for people to show up to come in. Well, Billy did all that and put him two weeks late coming back to Indiana to to high school. And they wouldn't let him play uh, uh, in organized matches. And the reasoning was they, they had a rule that said you had to practice 10 organized practices before you could compete. And it's, the rule makes some sense from the standpoint that you don't want people out of condition out there, you know, getting hurt. Well, you know, Billy's kind of an exception. Hell, he just got out of basic training. I've been through basic training. I know he was in better shape than most anyone else. They were totally inflexible on it. Hmm. And if wanted to challenge it, or South Vermillion wanted to challenge it, they would have had to go into court and spend a lot of money. We set the review panel up, and I think it's been pretty calm since then, and I think it's helped a lot of students. That's, that's uh, one of them I consider pretty important. Uh, I'll tell you an interesting, the first one I ever passed had to do with mollusk. Uh, I'm right here on the Wabash River, and there was a lot on that river when I was growing up, and the, the mussels that I'm talking about, you know, they're, they're quite an interesting life cycle. The uh, gametes from a mussel attach to a specific fish pen for nourishment, and then drop off at a certain place. Well, the the price of mussel shells got so high that they were scuba diving for them, and uh, I passed legislation that put a stop to the harvesting for a while. Wow. Uh, so that they could, uh, you know, reinvigorate the population. Just something crazy. But one of those things you remember.
0: Yeah, that's that's all very interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's a good...
1: Another uh, a moment that I'll n- never forget was I stayed at the Columbia Club most of the time. It was close and handy and safe. And uh, one night, you know, we were sitting around talking and just having a, a little drink or something. And I get a call from Chris Bailey, who was the... Head of the Indiana State Department of Health, and uh, I was shocked to get a phone call. I just surprised me that he would be calling me, you know, at the club. And his first words were, oh, "We've got a uh, we've got a death angel situation," <laughs> which I just kind of rocked me back. To which my question was, "Well, you know, as what's happened, one or two people died." And I said, "Well, how many?" And he indicated, "We don't know, but we think over twenty. This was the case of Vermilion Hospital where uh, Lynn Majors, who's now I think deceased or died I think while in prison, uh, took it by himself to terminate people's lives and well I'll never forget that moment as long as I live.
0: Wow. Yikes. Yeah. Um, geez, okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Am I taking you on a tangent? You don't want to go in here? We-
0: <laughs> no, you're totally fine. <laughs> You're totally fine. Yeah. No. I mean, the more information that you have to share, the better. Since it's you know oral history, so it's about getting you know everything that you remember. So. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, let's see. Thinking back a little bit to uh, uh, your first election, what did you think of the election process? Did it seem pretty straightforward, or was it confusing? Or.
1: No, I think it seemed pretty
0: simple in those days. I mean.
1: You, you didn't have, of course, near the mechanical voting. It was mainly paper ballots. Yeah. And what machines they did have was pretty simple to use. So I did not find it alarming at all. It looked, looked secure to me and, and the way it had been done for a long, long time. So I, I had no problem with that.
0: Yeah, okay. What was your uh, reaction when you found out that you won the election?
1: Uh, amazed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it had been... I started campaigning on Thanksgiving the year earlier, so it had been a long, growing out affair. And you're just almost in shock, okay? And and I won that election, I think, 60-40, so it wasn't too close, but it, 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 it set you back, and all of a sudden, now you go, okay, I caught the car, what do I do with it?
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Now, did you change your campaign strategies at all for future elections?
1: Uh, no. Okay. Not real. I have have some tapes of, you know, commercials and things that I had ran, but other than that, no.
0: Okay. What were you thinking when you walked into the state house for your first day in office?
1: I was stricken would be the best word for it to think that a kid from Fountain County Farm could actually end up in position to where you could make a difference sometimes. I felt a lot of responsibility uh, trying to make sure I didn't do anything to embarrass anybody was number one and learning the players is number two In those days longevity of a member was greater than what it is today where it's two or four now. Uh, there are A lot of people have been there 20, 30 years and I had a lot to learn from them. So uh, I just kind of played it by ear and tried to introduce myself to people and talk to them and understand where they were coming from if it was an issue of some contention. Okay, sure. another another time was extremely interesting to me. Uh, was a trip to Bosnia I made with Indiana employers and the Indiana National Guard. And uh, you get a real different perspective on the world when you go to a country like Bosnia, which had been under tremendous pressure uh, with the fighting between Croatia and Bosnia uh I mean, the, the standard of living was just you know so much lower than what we have. Yeah, yeah, it was really quite fascinating. I, I remember why right, Maggie Kern was with us and whenever we would go uh, to see something here's the black SUVs with the M16s at the corners blocking the traffic so you really get a different perspective and the big deal there was that there had been a slaughter uh, in 1995 in a little town called Serbenica. right and they had uh, the Serbs had shot I think I don't know the exact number but it was up in the thousands of people and the graves were young enough that the dirt had not been rained down you know Pat it was still chunky yeah you really get a different perspective on what's going on in the rest of the world
0: yeah that's yeah that's pretty crazy
1: dude. Dick Luger was on the ground there too as he was headed you know I want to I go I want to say this you know where's the dick lugers the birch buys the Bob Gardens the Lee Hamiltons my God those people were statesmen. And Senator Luger was on ground when we landed at Eagle Base in Bosnia. And he was just, he stopped there on his way to go on to, I think it was Belarus, where he was working on nuclear uh, re- uh, reduction, uh, you know, trying to get rid of the nuclear weapons or get them down to size. I mean, why do we need 2,600 times the firepower to destroy the entire Earth? And I applauded Luger. I, I did a resolution for him long before that trip, uh, congratulating him and thanking him for that, and I asked him who he wanted on there from the Democrat side of the aisle, and it was, his comeback was Barack Obama. So, mm. that, that's just a little sidebar.
0: Yeah. So, how did you learn the ins and outs of politics in Indiana?
1: I think watching people like I just mentioned, Dick Luger, Birch Bayh, Bob Garden, Lee Hamilton, Uh, watching those people and how they conducted themselves and their demeanor and their rhetoric, I I think, taught me as much as anything.
0: Yeah. Sure. How did you uh, know the needs and wants of your constituents? I'm sorry, I didn't understand, Ben. Uh, How how did you know the (laughs) needs and wants of your constituents?
1: Well, you know, you do surveys all the time, but, you know, I still... uh, Stopped at the local coffee shop and had breakfast, and before I go to the farm, even when we weren't in session, and they're not bashful about telling you what they think. One of them, uh, I remember a comment one of them made after I got elected caucus chairman in '94. uh, He said, uh, I'd never heard this before. He said, Well, it looks like it, he, he said, It looks like you're licking salt with the big cows. Now, you you gotta be a farm boy to understand what that means, okay? But (laughs) it brings you down to earth real quick. It means all the cattle, no matter how important they are, are licking from the same block of salt.
0: (laughs) And uh, that stuck with me over time. Sure, sure. Do you remember the first bill that you sponsored or (laughs) authored?
1: I think it was the bill on the the mollusk, on the mussels in the Wolves River.
0: Okay. Uh, how complex was it to get a bill passed in the General Assembly?
1: That one was pretty easy. When I got into some of the things later on, like renewable energy, then it gets pretty tough because now you've got major stakeholders get involved where it, you know there wasn't any of those kind of people about the uh, muscles.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, makes sense. Uh, how often did you work with the other party to get legislation done?
1: Uh, I wanted a Republican, uh, every bill that had my name on top, I wanted a Republican second on that bill. Okay. <laughs> I didn't see any reason not to make everything bipartisan, if you could. And, you know, we, we had some good friendships developed. Bill Friend, who ended up a Republican floor leader, and I did a lot of things together uh, in the agricultural community. One of the most important ones there was the Indiana Grain Indemnity Fund, which if the elevator went broke, the farmer got paid for what he lost.
0: Yeah, okay. Now, you kind of alluded to this earlier, I suppose, but uh, what was the atmosphere like in the General Assembly between Democrats or Republicans when you served?
1: Uh, It was generally a milder demeanor, but, you know, some people on both sides of the aisle uh, are hard partisan. And you just accept that, and you know what it is going in. And then there's, a, or was at least uh, during my time, a, a pretty large centrist group. And, uh, you know, I there are many times a Republican, when we were in majority, would come to me with something they wanted done or needed done and ask if I would help. <clears throat> as long as it's nonpartisan, I'd help them in any way I could. And that pays off, okay, because they'll remember something like that when you got a tough one. Yeah. And, uh, Come back and help support you on something you're trying to do.
0: Yeah, if that makes sense. Uh, was the so did you witness at all a change in the relations between Democrats and Republicans um, over the years that you served in the General Assembly, or is it pretty much the same?
1: No, there's it's major change. It's more contentious. Okay, it's uh, don't go out of your way to help somebody. It appears from the distance and. I don't know. uh, I blame most of the problems on one word, which is greed. Yeah. People, you know, you had to be willing. I I found in order to pass legislation, sometimes you just had to take a small bite at a time. It might take you a year or two to get it completed, but, you know, you do what you can if you're practical about it. Uh, I didn't think it made sense to stand there and butt your head against the wall, something that wasn't going to happen. Go around it. Go over it. Change your change your demeanor a little bit or what it you is you're wanting to do and find common ground so that you can pass it.
0: Yeah. Sure. What would you say the difference were between the House and Senate?
1: Well, the Senate's posture always was much more reserved, and I found working with Bob Darden and several Republican senators to be no problem at all. Okay. To go ahead, and I'm okay. I've never carried what I call heavily partisan legislation. And it just wasn't me. And I would always go over and talk to uh, Senator Garden and Senator Harrison, who was the state senator from, you know, my district, and uh, tell them what I wanted to do and see if they had any suggestions to make it better or if they thought it was dead in the water or just to pick their brains, you know, and to show them, you know, that I cared enough about what they might have uh, to input into the bill yeah
0: uh, that I had a lot of success that way yeah that that makes sense. Did you ever go against your own party leadership? oh hell yes <laughs> <laughs> how 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 was that like? What was that like?
1: Well, it's hell on earth, okay and, and that basically uh, happened in my last term when. Uh, the uh, Republican majority was trying to push through some things of controversy like minimum wage and prevailing wage uh, without proper debate and uh, that caused me to really when when our leader wanted to boycott the floor session to prevent the quorum well that that already cost me I know and every other member in my caucus $6,000 we had to They deducted from our pay, and we were about to suffer $1,000 fine. And uh, the thing was, at some point, it made no more sense to keep butting the head on the wall. So uh, I decided to stay on the floor for the quorum call, which led to the request from my caucus uh, for my resignation from that leadership position, which I did give them the resignation. understood it but I felt like and I still feel like I did what was right. Okay, blockading the system and I don't I don't I don't I didn't agree with the Republican leader trying to move things so fast that there wasn't adequate debate on it, okay. So I certainly wasn't on their side of the debate either, but it made no sense to continue to boycott when we were coming up, you know, with thousand dollar fines and, and most people serving are just your average person with an average income, and you know that that puts severe strain on on the family at home and things. When you're coming under a a thousand dollar a day fine,
0: yeah. And
1: I just didn't see where it was going to lead to anything good, and I felt like someone had to do something, and I did it. I, I went on and pushed my button green, and that led to my request to uh, resign the caucus chairmanship or be fired.
0: Yeah. Wow. Okay.
1: That was pretty tough. Still, it's kind of tough on the, sometimes.
0: So were you able, I mean, how did that affect the rest of your career then general assembly? Did you ever like recover from that or were you always kind of looked on as like, kind of like an untrustworthy uh, person in the party or.
1: No, I, I think I had built up enough, uh, respect over time that people understood and i'm not so sure many of them probably didn't agree with what the action was okay to find the courage to do that now i was in my last term okay i knew i wasn't running again already so uh didn't come into play for me
0: yeah i guess a little bit safer situation then in that case
1: (laughs) maybe i made it a little easier knowing uh, I still, you know, had respect from my members. I mean, my goodness, when you take somebody who's willing to poke their head out of the foxhole and let them take a shot at you, you know, you they they respect you for standing for what's right and what you believe to be right. Yeah. And I, I, there was no, no downside for that, for the rest of them, for me to do that.
0: Yeah. Uh, how how often would you say people would do that when you served? Never. Never. So that you were kind of an anomaly then? Uh, the only
1: other thing that I remember that was close to that was in about 1990 or 92, uh, Judge Frank Newkirk from Southern Indiana has switched parties uh, when we were in a 50-50
0: split. Oh. That was, that's something I didn't bring up either. When I first won,
1: we were, for the first time in history, at a 50-50 split. And it took us until Thanksgiving to get the rules settled. Um... Uh, <laughs> and be able to conduct business, but you got to have somebody in charge. It ended up with committees with like number of Republicans and Democrats, and nobody was really in charge to act as a governor uh, on the system, and it just was running muck. Now we changed that statute. We did end up with another fifty-fifty when I was in, but the statute had been passed earlier. That committee chairman and things would be dependent upon who was elected to the governor's
0: office. So. We curtailed some of that problem later on, but the that fifty fifty split's pretty tough stuff. Yeah, yes. That's interesting. So I mean you yeah, you served in multiple fifty fifty splits um in the house. And that was I guess eighty eight and ninety six? Yes. Okay. Um yeah, so do you think that uh I mean, do you think the process was better in a fifty fifty split or do you think it was just chaos?
1: I think it's more chaos than anything.
0: Okay. So so (laughs) the General Assembly, was it more productive or anything like that, you think?
1: No, what it does, actually, it forces people into opposing camps, Democrat and Republican, uh, because one vote now means the world. Yeah. I mean, you've got 50 Republicans voting one way, and you've got one Democrat voting with them, or vice versa. Uh, Now the pressure becomes intense on that one person.
0: Okay so you didn't like it then I guess
1: <laughs> no, it, it, it was, no it was chaos we were working until midnight passing 150 50 bills on one day I mean <laughs> I not
0: know what was in them yeah okay um, how influential would you say lobbyists were when you served
1: uh, I don't know if I'd like the word influence they're the purpose and, and, and validity of having lobbyists is education, because as a part-time General Assembly, you you all of a sudden faced with a thousand bills, and it's pretty hard to understand the little nuances in all of them. Okay. And the good lobbyists have integrity, and they will tell you straight up, you know, look, you don't want this. I know you. it's not good for your district. I understand. Uh, or they will explain the nuances of what the bill actually really gets down to doing. So they're an important part of the process, and uh, they they got to be very honest because one slip-up or one lie or one fallacy that came out of their mouth and nobody would talk to them again.
0: Yeah, okay. Were, were there any cases of that where someone just lied to you? or?
1: Uh, I don't remember that occurring because it is so important to have that credibility.
0: Yeah, that's good. Okay. Do you think, uh, like, how influential would you say, like, campaign donations or gifts were to politicians when you served? Do you think it impacted people, or it didn't have any impact?
1: No, it does. uh, You're cognizant, I mean, it takes money to run campaigns, unfortunately, and I think my first election I spent $40,000, and part of that was my money uh, from my IRA account. Uh, But now it's gotten to where, you know, you're looking at a half million or maybe a million Mm dollars to run for a state Senate seat. And the best thing that could happen would be public financing, but there's no support there for it. Uh, Unfortunately, I think that uh, people, I I just, I mean, it it just doesn't, uh, it just doesn't smell right when you see a campaign contribution of multi uh, thousands of dollars at the very least, okay? And that's why public financing could improve that scenario. But I don't know of any legislator that's ever been bought by a campaign contribution. Generally, the contributions follow people who already hold the stance or position that that lobbyist is concerned about.
0: Yeah. Okay. What would you say were the most controversial legislative issues when you served...
1: Uh, Certainly the social issues, you know, rank up and on top. There wasn't a lot, but there was a few of those. Um, Let me think. The the prevailing wage, uh, minimum wage, the labor issues, okay, are things that always got pretty partisan, although there would generally be three or four people from either side of the aisle that would cross over on some of those votes. But they were always pretty intense.
0: Okay. Uh, what do you remember being the most complex piece of legislation that you worked on?
1: So the, some of the renewable energy items are are pretty complex, and uh, I mean when you start talking about okay, who's who's going to be the winner or loser? What's a long long term ramification to the constituency as far as having electricity there when they flip the switch? Yeah, at a reasonable price. Those are pretty complex items that you get into. It doesn't turn out to be quite as simple as what you think it's going to be.
0: Yeah, makes sense.
1: That's the one that comes to my mind right off the top. But...
0: Uh, now, doing some like uh, research and going through some of the newspaper articles when you served, I saw there's a, like a few uh, topics that kept popping up um, at the time. Um, do you remember the debates regarding daylight savings time? Oh, my God, yeah. Oh, my God, I forgot it. It, This is an
1: extremely important issue, and one that I got elected several times just on that issue.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Here's the problem. Indiana is in a peculiar position right here on the division between the Central and the Eastern Time Zone. Geographically, the line on that break should be somewhere over around Richmond, but instead over time in an agreement that it be the Illinois state line with out uh, Daylight Savings Time became uh, where things moved too long before night time as a compromise. <clears throat> well, as you have seen from those articles, DST came up in a big way again, and nobody wanted to No, the Bill's authors would not concede to uh, codiceding to it that said, we, if we were moved to the central time zone, uh, Daylight Savings Time ought to be adopted, and I could have supported that position. But here's the problem. Most of the people that live in the district I've represented work across the state line where the jobs are in Danville or uh, you know somewhere up and down the state line there. Well, by doing what I call double daylight savings time, by being in the wrong time zone to begin with and then adopting it, now what happens is they wouldn't go to work until 9 or 10 in the morning. They wouldn't get off work until 6, 7, 8 o'clock at night and miss their kids' ball games. And... You add that onto the confusion of having the doctor's appointment across the state line, which is, like I say, only about six miles from where I'm sitting. Uh, You always had to ask, is that Indiana time or Illinois time? So I fought that effort for years, (laughs) years and years, okay? And finally uh, they got it squeaked through by one vote. I think Bill Ruppel was a critical vote on that one when he switched from a no vote to a yes vote. But uh, people felt very strongly about that issue over
0: here. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, yeah, what a debate, yeah, jeez. What about the uh, right-to-work walkout, do you remember that?
1: I do very well, there was 25,000 laborers out there in the land between the uh, (laughs) Indiana government, north and south, it was quite contentious, okay. Uh, I never felt those debates really got the justice that they deserved, because, I mean, Look, you could take, you could have a billion more jobs out here if you want to drop minimum wage down to a dollar. Yeah. Or you could have no jobs if you raise minimum wage to $100. So the question is finding that sweet spot in the middle where you're helping the business create jobs, but you're also providing a, a decent living for the families who work in those jobs. So yeah, those are, I mean, I remember people beating on the glass at the back of the house.
0: Yeah yeah now do you think that the the walkout aspect of that debate do you think that helped or hurt the Democrats in the long run uh, oh
1: boy I think it probably hurt okay uh, it, it, the the issues were are too complex to get out in a one bite uh Advertisement or something, and the average person's daily life is so consumed with just trying to put food on the table, uh, they didn't really maybe understand all the nuances of what some of that legislation would do. Yeah. So it was very contentious, and uh, one of those moments where you actually were concerned about your safety a little bit in there. Yeah. Wow.
0: So were you part of the group then that went to Illinois?
1: Yes. Yeah. The first the first time, yes. Although I never stayed there, okay, because my house is so close to the state line here. (laughs) I never had to go through that. Like I said, I think that was handled poorly on both parts, all right? The Republican caucus didn't need to be so heavy-handed time-wise, all right? Let it play out. They had the votes. And don't try to suspend the rules like they tried to do. So, you know, our leader then decided to do the walkout. Well, we did that once, and then it came around the, the second time here where it was about to happen again, which was when I chose to stay on the floor and vote President for the quorum because I didn't see it was gonna get anywhere, and it made no sense to me to to keep doing something which wasn't
0: gonna work. Yeah, okay. Uh, one of the other things I read was that you were kind of known for being uh, like really bipartisan, is that something that you agree with and that you kind of, like, valued?
1: I wear that with a badge. Yeah. It means a lot to me, okay? And it says that I was fair. And in the final analysis, what you want is somebody who's going to be fair in their judgment, okay? And not try to ramrod stuff down, you know, people's throats. And come to the compromise. There's generally a
0: compromise, like I said, quoted by or so a thin pancake, doesn't have two sides. Yeah.
1: And... Generally, I always—it seemed to me—I always found some
0: merit in everybody's
1: position, whether I was in agreement with it or not. I did find merit in whatever they, you know, they had tried to do or what they were trying to help do. Sure. Wouldn't we get the best legislation possible if we had more of that and less of the
0: partisanship? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, it must be, especially given the role that you served uh, in the General Assembly, being someone that you know looked to be bipartisan, um, I guess it, it can be kind of frustrating to see how things have been increasingly partisan um, over time in the U.S.
1: I'm afraid there's a lot of good people who, number one, due to gerrymandering, number two, due to the money and due to the national politics, has taken us down a path that's that's bad. And uh, I don't know, I I guess we've survived damn near 300 years here, so maybe things will straighten themselves back out at some point in time. But show people respect, whether you agree with them or not, okay? There's no reason to be punitive. There's no reason to be heavy-handed. Everybody ought to have a say-so at the table at some point.
0: Yeah. Uh, So when, when did you leave the Indiana General Assembly? 2012. And uh, what was your main reason for doing that?
1: You just get tired. Okay, it's time. That was 24 years. Yeah. And uh, you just get tired after a while of, you know, fighting, changing maps that continue to move. My my district, never baseline was never better than 50-50. And, uh, you know, with everything that was going on in the world, it just felt right to to say, there's three ways to leave there. You can die, you can get beat, or you can leave of your own volition. I chose the third one, which I thought was the most acceptable.
0: Yeah. Uh, how would you summarize your time, then, overall, as a state legislator?
1: I'm very proud of the work I think I tried to show, or the issues that I pushed that I thought would help the average person. And I rest very comfortably, even you know, with some of the contentious things that happened at the end,
0: Knowing I did what I thought was right for my state and my country. Yeah, that's good. Do you have a a favorite story from when you served? I, I think uh, I think I probably
1: relate most of those favorite stories. I mean, <laughs> sounds it's, good.
0: It's,
1: yeah, it's very intellectually stimulating. Okay, to know what the rules are and have something you're trying to do and know how to. To work it so that you can accomplish that, and
0: so there's, there's some satisfaction in, in thinking you've really figured out how to, how to do things. Yeah, made a lot of good friends,
1: a lot of good people who tried very hard.
0: What lessons did you learn from your experience? Uh, patience and give, give a, given give an opposition
1: viewpoint, an opportunity to make a case to you, uh, it's just kind of like life, you know, and you do the best you can, you learn as you go, and I, I, I'm proud to have served the time I did, and was, I'm very proud that I was given that opportunity to go from a farm boy in Found County, Indiana, to the, I, I, I mean, I've met presidents, I've traveled various places that benefited Hoosiers, and and people in the
0: United States, and I'm just—I'm I'm very pleased that it turned out the way it did. Yeah. Okay. But Do you? Another thing that impacted us
1: in those days, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis was coming about. Uh, they were pretty—you know—we think we live in some tumultuous times, but we, we've had some some pretty strong deal coming down itself. I, the trip to Bosnia really, I mean, it opened this farm boy's world to no end to see that people would just murder people, you know, because of their ethnicity.
0: Yeah.
1: And it just makes you sick to, to actually be there and see graves of people who went through that and think about the sacrifices they made trying to do what they felt was right.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely, uh, yeah, it teaches you a lot about life, I suppose, and... Um, it sure does. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any regrets uh, from your time as a legislator? Uh, ben, you know, honestly, I don't want to. I don't want to sound uppity or anything, but I don't think I do. Okay, I'm yeah,
1: that's sure fine. I, I'm sure, I made some mistakes, Nate. You got, you got to be, uh, you got to be a little bit of a. Uh, value... I, I don't know how to say it. You've you got to have. You've got to have some ego to run to begin with. Okay? Yeah,
0: true, yeah.
1: <laughs> and you need a lot more, you keep going at it another 11 times, so yeah, uh, I always try to hold that under check.
0: Yeah, it
1: wasn't about me, it was about the people I represented.
0: Makes sense. What was your proudest moment as a legislator?
1: My proudest moment. I think passing some of that Oregon governor legislation, which I believe made an absolute difference in some people's lives right now, and uh, the Indiana High School Athletic uh, Association review panel are two things that I, I, on occasion I see something happen, and I think that happened because I helped make it happen.
0: Yeah. Let's see, what advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators?
1: Be humble, do your homework, understand that you can have a difference of opinion without being an enemy or or, uh, or trying to hurt someone else's chances in some crazy way in a campaign, lying. I'm so disappointed that there's no more liability for uh, false campaign literature I mean some of the things that was sent out against me and I'm not just talking about me because it happens to everyone It's just blatant lies and uh, those hurt okay if you have got any self pride at law it hurts when something comes out I mean you know one of the pieces insinuate
0: I voted for for, to protect child molesters yikes you you gotta be
1: kidding I mean I've got copies of these you can see one of them had a uh, that front cover on that piece had a bloody switchblade knife dangling from an arm. That was, it sent about 10 or 12 of those, and, and those hurt. They do, because you know they're totally false, and you just pray to God nobody listens or believes them.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting thing because, you know, uh, being someone who served in the General Assembly, in your experience, uh, you know, dealing with the law on a regular basis, to what extent are people allowed to just? you know, make up stuff about people without, uh, you know, getting in trouble for that.
1: Well, it seems to be the case.
0: <laughs> it's, it seems like, I'm surprised sometimes that there's, like, there can be no, like, defamation lawsuits or something against.
1: Yes, and, and those are things that probably ought to be done and challenged at some point in time, because but the First Amendment is so strong, and we all believe in it, so... Who's going to be the judges? So you know, what causes the line? That's what you get into.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's always a tough topic.
1: That's why it's important to have been around your district shaking hands, letting people know who you are, and, and then when they hear bullshit like that, they go, I know, Dale, that's not true.
0: Yeah. Well, what, in your opinion, is the most important work of the Indiana General Assembly?
1: Well, that's kind of open-ended. You mean in regards to passing something?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, like, when when you think of the Indiana General Assembly, like, what's its main purpose, do you think, when it comes to serving, you know, society?
1: Well, it it should be there to help promote job growth, uh, a a decent living wage, protection of the environment, uh, anything to help people in their day-to-day lives. Cost of college education has just gotten, you know extremely high and people if you can find a way to help them do that uh make those payments and meet those bills i i think that ought to be you know at least a couple three of the goals that they ought to strive for
0: yeah what would you say the public does not know about the indiana general assembly and how it operates
1: uh it's amazing how many times people actually confused you me or uh, a candidate of uh, going to Washington. Oh, yeah, so it would be better if we had a little stronger government classes. I
0: think. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's always unfortunate. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you know, or they would bring an issue up that's before the U.S. Congress and think you know uh, that that was you, and when in fact, it was it was national and not statewide issue.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how would you say the state of indiana has changed over the course of your lifetime
1: i think we're holding our own i mean we don't have an ocean we don't have mountains uh, but we've got some pretty nice places you can go to our state parks of dunes french lick is something that's happened during my tenure that i kind of helped with uh, on some things is a wonderful place to take us you know a short trip down to southern indiana to see things I, I think we're holding our own for with the assets we've got, and uh, the, the thing in the past that's always made me the proudest has been our national legislators, people like Lee Hamilton and Dick Luger.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, my God, you know, if we had 150 of those people, we wouldn't have too many problems. Yeah, interesting, okay. Uh, how has the Indiana General Assembly changed?
1: More partisan. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't know what else to say except that that's the tragedy part of it. I don't think everything is as black and white as some of them say, I see things in gray.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Do you think the people of Indiana have changed at all?
1: Uh, I think there's been some cases here in the last, you know, 10, 15 years where economic stress has has hit people. And uh, the job market is changing, you know, from... From one type of manufacturing base to technological and 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 companies like Eli Lilly are right out there on the forefront. So I, I think it's moved in a direction of you know less dependent on that manufacturing base and more into other areas. That's good. Uh, thank God, most people who
0: are born here want to stay here. Uh, yeah, sure, it's nice to visit the mountains and the ocean, but. I was always ready to come back home, too. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Last question, then. Um, What do you want the people of Indiana to know about their influence on the Indiana General Assembly?
1: You can make a difference, okay? Let me tell you, if I got 10 or 12 phone calls on an issue, I started paying attention to it. (laughs) Then when the emails started coming in, carte blanche... uh, they can make a difference, okay, and don't be afraid to contact your person and be civil, be be reasonable, and, and that. don't just call and start screaming at them, because they've got a lot of factors maybe going on under, on an issue that, that they don't know about. Uh, so be polite, make your voice heard, and sometimes you actually make a dang difference.
0: Yeah, yeah, true. Um, well, is there anything that uh, I didn't ask about that you want to mention, or...
1: Well, I I don't I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I just very uh, I'm very honored that I was given the opportunity to serve the number of years that I did. It was uh, enlightening. Uh, I hope that I made a difference in more than one life and did not waste my time or my constituents' time. Thank I want to thank them very much for the opportunity to, to do what I've
0: done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, thank you so much, then, for uh, taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it.
1: You're welcome, Ben. I wish you all luck in the world, and I hope someday somebody finds use for the words.
0: (laughs) Yeah, sounds good. All right, thank you so much.